I thought what I'd do is I'd start off with uh, a quote from the Tathagatagarbha Sutra. <clears throat> Try saying that after a couple of whiskeys. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not quite sure to what extent this kind of terminology is well known amongst everybody. So just if you need it to help you kind of get through the, these couple of paragraphs. You can think of Tathagata as the Buddha, or a Buddha, any awakened being, and Tathagatagarbha as, um, well, it goes on to explain what Tathagatagarbha is, but it's kind of, it, it's that potential that we have for Buddhahood. So this is the quote, this is the Buddha speaking. When I regard all beings with my Buddha eye, I see that hidden within the kleshas, negative mental traits of greed, desire, anger, and stupidity, there is seated augustly and unmovingly the Tathagata's wisdom, the Tathagata's vision, and the Tathagata's body. All beings, though they may find themselves with all sorts of kleshas, have a Tathagatagarbha that is eternally unsullied and is replete with virtues no different from my own. The Buddha can really see the Tathagatagarbha of sentient beings, and because he wants to disclose the Tathagatagarbha to them, he expounds the sutras and the Dharma in order to destroy kleshas and reveal the Buddha nature. Such is the Dharma of all the Buddhas. Whether or not Buddhas appear in the world, the Tathagatagarbha of all beings is eternal and unchanging. It is just that it is covered by sentient beings' kleshas. When the Tathagata appears in the world, he expounds the Dharma far and wide to remove their ignorance and purify their universal wisdom. If there is a Bodhisattva who has faith in this teaching and who practices it single-mindedly, he will attain libera liberation and true universal enlightenment. And for, this, for the sake of the world, he will perform Buddha deeds far and wide. So we celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment because that is also our own potential. When we mark the Buddha's enlightenment, we're also acknowledging that, cap that same capability within ourselves. And this capability, this potential, what he's saying here is, is not something that we gain over time. It's not, I'm thinking of kind of like an athlete, an amateur athlete at some point in their training. There comes the potential for kind of the big time, if you like. Um, well, it's not quite like that. It isn't something that isn't here now, isn't here yet, but maybe in the future if we train hard enough. Rather, by being born, there is that potential, that seed. And of course, this is one of the aspects of what is meant by Buddha nature. It was mentioned in the, in the quote, and which many, some of you may know is a kind of favorite of mine. I understand it's also, it can be a bit of a divisive term as well. I think Bante's point um, that there is, a, and others have made it as well, that there is a, a bit of a problem with the whole idea of Buddha nature is a valid one <clears throat> with all Buddhistic concepts, you know, ways of t attempting to communicate the Dharma, there's always such room for error and misunderstanding. The main misunderstanding here, I suppose, is that 
it essentially equates to a substantial self somewhere within us, the very thing that the Buddha uh, questioned and disputed, actually. I suppose the rest of this talk is, is, is trying to explore that a bit better and try and get clarity on that. What I'll say for now is that it's clear that we do need to avoid, when, when approaching the whole idea of Buddha nature, avoid just taking one aspect of ourselves and replacing it with another. That's kind of what, that's one of the dangers. Um, in fact, Dogen, there's, a, there's a, a figure on our refuge tree, Dogen Zenji, a Japanese, 13th century Japanese master, said there's various ways that you can conceive of yourself, but however you conceive of yourself, that is not Buddha nature. And, but as I said, simply by being born with our birth, there is this potential, there is this seed somehow for a Buddha to arise. And um, that is, the, if you like, the ultimate inspiration, isn't it? It is for me. Uh, I remember a friend of mine once saying to me, your enlightenment is your birthright. And I, it kind of hit me hard, actually, I remember. Uh, I didn't quite understand it at the time. It kind of felt akin to saying enlightenment was like an entitlement, which didn't sit as comfortably. But it is, it is our own potential that gives the Buddha's enlightenment its significance. Without that, the whole of the Buddha's story would just be that, would be a rather interesting story, a rather fantastical story that happened once upon a time sort of thing. But because of that potential, the whole story serves as a description of human development, of our own development. His four sights, our little wake-up calls that we get, our little dissatisfactions, um, a bit of a sense of lack in life, and the beginning of forming questions as to the, the possibility of there being, possibly being more than what we currently experience. Uh, I suppose there's a, there's a link I'm trying to make between his foresight and our the beginning of our appreciation or seeing of the first noble truth. There's a kind of link that could be made there. His leaving home and going forth, our first coming along to a Buddhist center, or any of the ways that we might start exploring this a little bit more. Uh, yeah, we kind of start to see a bit of the first noble truth, and then we respond, we react in some way, and, and uh, explore the possibility of a new way of living. Uh, his learning of the teachings and, and uh, practices that were available to him, our learning of the teachings and practices that he's, he's made available to us. Thankfully, because of his example, we can skip severe austerities. <laughs> <laughs> we find out in the story that they're actually somewhat of a dead end, although this time in Siddhartha's life certainly had its significance. There was no shortcut. You had to kind of go through this. Um, it had its significant purpose. Or perhaps the asceticism represents the, all the ways in which we can swing to, uh, you know, self-flagellation in any of its 
gross or subtle forms. And that has absolutely no place in the spiritual life at all, as far as I can see. And his enlightenment, our enlightenment. So enlightenment is a human experience. Yeah? The Buddha didn't claim divinity. So by getting to know him through his story, through the things he said, we, come, we get to know ourselves, uh, who we are, what we are. The question of who was the Buddha or who is the Buddha um, it's, it's kind of part of our spiritual journey, isn't it? It's part of the path. It's not an academic question, really, although it can be. I mean, we can talk about the Buddha as a historic figure, as a teacher who, uh, in a certain time, in a certain place. You know, the fact, as it were. But the question of who was the Buddha, or who is the Buddha, takes on its real significance when it becomes a spiritual question. And uh, it's not one that we ask and then we form some sort of answer to, and then we can begin to explore Buddhism. It's kind of it's asking the question and re-asking the question again and again, all the way through. That's kind of, we make it one of our concerns to get to know the Buddha. Very often we take um, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths in the Deer Park to the ascetics as the first teaching of the newly awakened Buddha. Uh, and indeed, because Kadanya experiences an awakening on that occasion, it is what, well, we call it the first turning of the Dharma wheel, don't we? Because something of the Dharma has been communicated. And this is really, when I was writing this, I thought, God, that's really, really important. Actually, I think Kadanya's enlightenment is just as important and as significant as the Buddha's. Because just as it, you know, we were just kind of saying that if, if, if enlightenment was the Buddha's capacity, not a capacity of all of ours, if it was particular to him, then the story would kind of stop there. Well, similarly, if it were a potential of all of ours and yet it somehow couldn't be communicated cruelly, uh, you know, the, the, the universe had <laughs> conspired to screw us over, then... Um, <laughs> <clears throat> then again, the, the, the story would, would just stop there. Of, you, you know. um, so on a day like today, it's not just the fact that the Buddha experienced an enlightenment. And it's not just the fact that that is also our own potential. The third very much needed aspect is that that, that can be communicated. So that, that potential can be activated. But anyway, actually, there is a teaching that precedes that occasion. Uh, of the Four Noble Truths. It's not a turning of the Dharma wheel because nothing of the Dharma is communicated in this particular interaction. Um, but in it, <clears throat> the Buddha attempts to describe himself. And I thought, who best to, if we want to get to know who the Buddha is, who best to uh, tell us than himself? So this teaching is given to us in the Donna Sutta, where Donna the Brahmin asks the Buddha, are you a deva? It's kind of like a god. Are you a gandaba? Are you a yaka? I was going to look these up. Uh, I think I think gandaba is more like a kind of magician type. I'm not quite sure. I was going to do it. All it would have taken was a Google thing, and I didn't do it. Uh, are you a human? And the Buddha replies no to all of those questions. So that's really interesting. He's saying that uh, the Buddha himself, or a Buddha, 
is not definable, not able to be labeled as this as, as opposed to that. Uh, one way of defining a, a, a being, in, I'm going to get a bit kind of doctrinal on you now for a minute or two, uh, not very long. The, uh, way, one way of dis dis describing, a, defining a being in Buddhism is via what Buddhism calls mental defilements. <clears throat> and uh, they kind of sully the otherwise pure mind. And a lot of these mental defilements are quite well known to us. We have the, the three poisons of greed, anger, and confusion. We have the ten fetters, um, the five hindrances. When a mind is defiled, the resultant being is defined by those defilements. So here, with the newly awakened Buddha standing in front of Donna the Brahmin, he, he, he essentially says that the particular defilements at play that would or could result in a Gandaba or a Yaka or a human or a Deva have been, well, he says, dug up, unrooted. So if you think of a, a rather kind of ferocious ivy plant, uh, you, can, you can cut it right back, you can weaken it significantly, but if, if that's all you do, well, it can grow just as thick and, and strong as ever. But if you take it out by the root, it dies. So here stands a being that looks human, indeed was born human, and st actually still shares, obviously, many similar binding characteristics, like a, a body of bone and flesh that will wither and expire. And yet human is not an altogether accurate description for this being. Uh, so form remains the same, external appearance remains the same, mind is radically different, un undefiled. So in this, in this sutra, Donna represents the defiled mind resulting in a human. The Buddha represents the undefiled mind resulting in a Buddha. So all of which means that if a Buddha can be defined or described at all, it's only via what he is not. Not this, not that. Undefiled. And yet, as I said, the Buddha didn't claim divinity. He was a Buddha, a being of undefiled mind, because he, he had been born a human that had applied exactly the right kind of effort, not necessarily the right amount of effort, and I think I go on a bit to, to say a bit more about that, but the right kind of effort that reversed the habits, the tendencies, the mental defilements that had been giving rise to a human being. I say reversed because I think this is a recent reflection of mine. I might be talking rubbish. There, there is a way of looking at this process from human being to Buddha where there, there is kind of like a de-evolution, if that makes sense at all. The, everything's brought back to mind. Everything's brought back to its original source. So those mental defilements have been chopped right back and unrooted. And this says something about the direct relationship between human beings and Buddhas. We aren't made of different stuff. Uh, one way I've heard that talked about is if the Buddha is the oak tree, then we are the acorn. Yeah? Not the same, not different. Buddhahood is our pinnacle, our destiny, if you don't mind the term. Our birthright, even. 
But this potential, this destiny, uh, this seed, is not, uh, it requires something of us. It's not a self-blooming flower, is it? Nothing is. Uh, all things arise dependent on conditions, including a Buddha, including enlightenment. Like any seed, it needs the right conditions. So I was thinking of us like, um, well, like spiritual farmers, all kind of trying to uh, help put in the right conditions that will help nurture the seed. Uh, and how to bring about the right conditions needed, that's going to be different for everyone. Uh, as we sit here today, every single one of us is a product of our conditioning. We all have different um, habits, different tendencies, different strengths, different weaknesses. So as we try and kind of bring in these, as we move into action, as it were, to help bring these conditions into play that, that's needed, all of that has to come into play, as it were. Uh, I think I talked a bit of, about this in a way in my last talk when I came back from my ordination retreat in the summer. Um, one thing that was kind of going off for a lot of people, including myself, was the, um, t the tendency to compare ourselves with other people around us. Questions like, am I doing enough? Am I, am I, am I practicing right? Am I practicing enough? Am I training adequately? And all quite good questions to ask, I think, at times, in a certain way. But certainly from my, you know, speaking personally, I think when I'm asking those questions, really what I'm asking is, am I doing enough compared to him or her? It, it always comes, it becomes about someone else, about our effort versus someone else's, our spiritual life versus theirs. And, you know, it's such a shame that we do that, if you recognize what I'm saying. Uh, because... There's something completely unique about each and every person's spiritual journey. Uh, and if that is embraced, it, then it, 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 I think it becomes a massive benefit to the spiritual life. If it's not embraced and if there's comparison instead, it's a terrible barrier because it just keeps reaffirming re all of the rather negative stories that you tell yourself about yourself. Reggie Ray says in one of his books, I was kind of dipping in and out of it, Gukiloka, I don't remember the title of it, um, said a, spiritual per a, a person's spiritual journey cannot be circumscribed or judged by any external authority. You won't find your spiritual journey written down in any book. So we're all unique, and all the conditions that I've ever been subject to uh, are different to the ones that you've been subject to. They've molded and shaped me. Yours have molded and shaped you. And if we want to move forward at all on the spiritual path, then um, we have to kind of start from where we are. This is why Bante identified the first stage as integration, getting to know where you are, uh, getting to know yourself in, in your heights and depths, as, as we say. Uh, we're all at different starting blocks, if you like. And this is what the Buddha's vision, uh, I was going to say after his enlightenment, it's probably during the enlightenment experience of the lotus pond revealed to him, isn't it? That we're all at different stages of development. And we know that he taught in line with that vision as well. His skillful means are an attempt at um, making the, the teachings appropriate to the, the, to the individual 
to the individual's capacity. Uh, and we know that he taught all kinds of people as well. He taught everybody that came to him, which is really telling, because he knew that they, that, that they did possess this Tathagata so that they were capable of, uh, you know, at least taking the next step. Interestingly, in, in this regard, um, going back to Donna the Brahmin, uh, upon hearing the Buddha claiming to be a Buddha, claiming to be awake, we're told that Donna was unimpressed and walked off, <laughs> which is why I said it wasn't a turning of the Dharma wheel. You know, nothing was kind of communicated of the Dharma anyway. Um, and yet, very soon after, we're told that when he's walking towards his friends or ex-friends in the deer park, the ascetics, um, they instantly could tell that something, they could see something in him, something otherworldly in his demeanour. Perhaps something similar to what uh, Siddhartha had witnessed in the, the wandering holy man, man the, you know, the fourth sight, um, so many years previously that had inspired his own spiritual path. So Donna could not see enlightenment right in front of his face in the newly awakened Buddha and yet the men in the deer park and many other people were told over the next 40-50 years who were to encounter the Buddha um, could see it instantly. Donna was perhaps a lotus flower that hadn't emerged much from the water whereas Kadanya in particular um, well he was uh, you know really quite open lotus petals quite open, those who had but just little dust in their eye, in the words of Brahma Sahampati. So the point being that enlightenment is not necessarily discernible to everyone. It may be their own potential, but they might not be able to see it, uh, even if it were right in front of their face. Um, and as I suggest, you know, maybe it depends on where you yourself are in relation to it. But, you know, I think about this sometimes when I'm walking down Market Street or something. I think, or airports, it happens at airports quite a bit. Uh, there could be Buddhas wandering around amongst us. In a way, I'm not necessarily concerned with whether that's true or not. I think that the point of kind of coming at it like this is it brings enlightenment very much into, in, into my world, into the real world into the modern day world. You know, maybe we're very used to the idea of Buddhas wandering around India two and a half thousand years ago. Um, well, why not, why not here? Why not now? Even though we're all unique and at de different stages of development, we do share the same direction, if you like. If we, all, if we want to move into the, in, in, the, in the direction of the Buddha, if we want to follow in his footsteps, as it were, uh, we can't just go off in you know, different directions. <clears throat> so our paths may wind in different ways, all of the ways uh, that allow us to take the next step being appropriate to our uniqueness. Um, yet all of these paths, individual paths, seem to be contained in, in, in one broader path. Uh, all the, the, the teachings apply to all of us, but how we explore them, which ones will be our particular working ground, um, you know, the various ways that we kind of come into a deeper understanding of them, um, that's going to differ, but the, the teachings apply to all of us. We're certainly united in a practice of 
well, namely ethics and working mental states, working directly on the mind. Meditation, of course, being our primary tool here. I'm not going to say anything about meditation today, but I didn't, I didn't want it to be not mentioned in my talk at all for a really good reason. That was the Buddha's practice. I think that's really interesting and kind of overlooked. You know, we might have a pantheon of practices these days, but meditation, that was the Buddha's practice. And that's where all of these, um, you know, the, the, the big, all the tenets of Buddhism sprung from. I mean, I've heard them called observations. All the tenets, all the basic tenets of Buddhism are actually observations of his. And that's where they sprung from, his practice of, of meditation. I would also say that we're united in a practice of renunciation as well. Not a very sexy topic, perhaps, but a, an essential one in the spiritual life. Um, it's interesting that the Buddha, after he'd succeeded in his quest, he didn't just return back home to his life and kind of pick it up where he left off. He didn't go back to the palace. Um, there was, in a way, there was nothing stopping him. Um, he the reason that he'd left had been fulfilled. He'd found the answers to his questions. But instead, he went into a life of monasticism. I mean, that kind of renunciation is probably not going to be attractive to most practitioners. Um, and yet, renunciation still needs to feature in our lives, whether it's monastic life or lay life, or neither. You know, this idea that Bante put down of the order being neither monastic nor lay, I think he's pointing at something really, really deep. The fact that, um, I think what he's saying is it's not, it's not helpful at all to compare those two. What matters is that there is renunciation going on. Uh, there is deepening. It's a good example of what I mean by it looking different person to person, but it's all Renunciation. It's all something that we're all engaged in, in our own way. And I suppose that's something that Bante backs up with. Um, lifestyle is secondary, isn't it? Commitment's primary, lifestyle secondary. So this brings us on to uh, the teachings. The teachings of enlightenment, the formulations that the Buddha came up with to try and communicate something of what he'd discovered. And, uh, you know, we said, or you may have heard it said, things like, don't mistake the finger pointing to the moon for the moon itself, meaning that the teachings only ever point the way to something. Um, that reality, if you like, is outside of our conceptualizations, beyond them. And this is another really kind of important thing to that I'm kind of looking at to understand. Because I think that we do mistake the descriptions of things for the thing itself. I, it's not a fault of anyone. I think that it's, it's completely inevitable. There's, the sta there's a stage of, of living the spiritual life where there's something very hypnotic about the finger. This is the, friend, the, the same friend who said, who said your enlightenment is your birthright, said there's something very hypnotic about the finger. And it's true, there is. <laughs> um, so it's a very real danger, it happens all the time. And there's a, but of course there's a point to the finger, but clearly it's the moon that matters, isn't it? Um, 
all the teachings, all the teachings fall short of the reality of things because they are attempts at a description. They use language and words and imagery and ideas and concepts. That is, if you like, all the Buddha can offer. I mean, I say all, it's an absolute perfect offering. It's a pristine offering. I'm not faulting the offering at all because they then point the way so that we know where to kind of begin looking and then see for ourselves and see that, no, it wasn't like the description of it, actually. So we shouldn't think that because we have a good understanding, a good grasp of a certain description, of a certain teaching, that, oh yeah, I get it's like that. Well, it isn't like that. Study the teachings and, and, and you know, revere them even, talk, give talks on them, read them. Uh, but always kind of looking beyond them, if you like, sort of what they're pointing towards. Don't settle, if you like, for a good understanding of a certain description. It's a really good start, but need to take it further, need to take it deeper. Attachment to descriptions, to the teachings, which I suppose is what I'm talking about, attachment to teachings, being hypnotized by the finger, uh, prevents us from going deeper and seeing the moon. But one of the most detrimental ways that it does that, and this is, I suppose, just an opinion, you don't have to agree with this. One of the most detrimental ways that it does that is it, it can lead to an inability or an unwillingness to see the underlying principle that is underlying it throughout all spiritual paths, all religions, worthy of the title of being described as such. I feel like I need to say that. Uh, <clears throat> on my ordination retreat, there were definitely a couple of times, a small handful of times, where there was... I, I don't know what the word what the word could be, a, a slight amusement, I suppose, of the idea of a Christian going into a church and kneeling down to pray to God. And yet we'd just come out of the shrine room having done our sardana. And to me, it was like, well, what do you think you've just been doing, really? Uh, okay, the terminology cha changes. And I'm not dismissing terminology as unimportant. I think it can be very important how we think about things, how we talk about things. But we can't get hung up on them. We can't get attached to them to the point where you can't appreciate or see the underlying principle or factor, the, the unifying factor that's present there. Because if we do that, I think that we miss something really, really important about what the spiritual life actually is. It isn't Buddhism. It isn't Christianity, it isn't Islam, it isn't Judaism. These are kind of like rather convenient labels that we put on something rather than the thing itself. That, that's why the Buddha said when he was asked, what is your teaching? Whatever contributes to calmness of mind, equanimity, modesty, contentment, energy, that is my teaching. That's really interesting that he didn't give any structural doctrine 
The Buddha's Dharma can be defined only by something that contributes to the genuine development of the individual, whatever that is. Uh, you know, development in, in the direction of realizing their full potential. I've always seen the Buddha as a truth seeker, ultimately. And I've always thought that if I want to follow, it, if I want to follow his example, I need to be a truth seeker. The Buddha was an individual, confident, not afraid to strike out on his own, not afraid to see the limitations of doctrine, not afraid to abandon doctrine when it had proven itself to be unhelpful. At our ordination, we vow <clears throat> to continue in the spiritual life, even if no one else does. And, uh, of course, then we go on to have our public ordination ceremony, which, amongst other things, signifies the fact that we don't ever have to do it alone. But obviously that fact doesn't make the vow meaningless. It doesn't mean that just because we, it's very unlikely that we'll ever have to walk the spiritual life completely alone, doesn't mean that we can take that vow as a kind of, as a matter of course or lightly. I think it speaks of something very deep indeed. It kind of speaks of our commitment, um, our dedication, our, individ our individuality. When I was considering an end to this talk, it kind of stumped me for a while. And so I started thinking, well, what, what, what is it that, what, what's your point? What's your point, Amrita? <laughs> uh, what is it, what do you say? Uh, I hope that none of you are kind of thinking that as well. Um, but I'll tell you anyway. I think the point, the overall point is to, is to trust this more to trust this Tathagatagarbha, this Buddha nature, to have confidence in it, um, in yourself and in other people. It's obviously something that we share. Um, maybe especially each other, the people that you're practicing alongside. But in that quote from the Tathagatagarbha Sutra that we started with, um, the Buddha essentially said towards the end, if you're interested in being a bodhisattva, then you need to have faith that each and every person does have a Tathagatagarbha, that they are capable. And he says it again in the, very, the opening line of the Nirvana scripture, all sentient beings have Buddha nature, or are Buddha nature, depending on the translation. And I think my increasing shredhar in kind of, to speak more personally for a bit, my increasing shredhar in this potential of mine, inverted commas, has helped move the spiritual life away from being this kind of rather one-sided thing where it's all completely dependent on my continuous effort and struggle, probably, um, and I'm just plowing, plowing away, nurture the seed, nurture the seed, water, 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 drown it, probably, uh, <laughs> to something much more much more gentle than that, much more natural than that, where something is actually allowed to grow. You know, if we take the, the, spirit, the, the, the lotus flower as the symbol of this, of this Tathagatagarbha, that unfolds quite naturally. We, we, we don't make that happen, if you know what I mean. We, just, we simply encourage it to build on 
the simile that I gave of, of us being spiritual farmers, I kind of took it a bit further and thought, actually, there's probably a way of being in the world, of being in the spiritual life where we're more, a bit more like builders, kind of, you know, the hard graft. The position of the, of the spiritual builder is like, um, well, I'm in the driving seat here and I need to, you know, engage in some hard labor. Uh, it's all dependent on my building something, creating something. And there is definitely a way of being in the spiritual life where the ego is still, it's still in the driving seat and it's making it all happen. Um, the position of the spiritual farmer is like nature's in the driving seat, actually. And I need to tend to it. I need, I need to get, there is definitely a, a surrendering in the spiritual life. We give ourselves to this. Because um, if you like, it was the self that had the stranglehold on the, on the lotus flower. You know, give yourself a little more, that relinquishes a little more. It's allowed to unfold quite naturally. Um, and that's what nurtures the seed. This is, a, again, quite a more recent reflection. That's what nurtures the seed. I thought the conditions that we help to put in place, because I'm not saying that there's no work to be done. I think that's probably Bante's ultimate um, grievance with the whole idea of Buddha nature is because leads to people kind of possibly saying, oh, well, there's no, I'm a Buddha. <laughs> ah. um, <laughs> so I'm not trying to fudge that. You know, any farmer, spiritual or otherwise, will tell you there's a, there's a lot of work to be done. But the conditions that we help to put in place are the, hopefully the ones that allow us to relinquish self a little bit more. And then in turn, the seed's nurtured. So that's what I mean by trusting it more. Giving, I'm actually talking about giving oneself to it more. 